Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Why didn't the sailor play cards? Because the captain was standing on the deck. My guest today is Elisama Menezes. She specializes in marine shipping for WWF Canada. In today's episode, Ellie shares how, growing up in Brazil, the ocean played an integral part in her life and how she created a program that helps more people connect with the sea. We also chat about the importance of social and managerial aspect of marine science and how shipping plays a role in our changing climate. We also discuss how this industry influences those who call the sea home, both above and below the ocean's surface. Please enjoy. Ellie, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Uh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Oh my God, I can't believe I'm in a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Super fun. So before we kind of jump in a little bit, I'm really, really excited to chat with your work. It's very different from anything that we've talked about on the podcast before. Could you share a little bit about what WWF Canada is and kind of the goals behind it? Yes, sure. So WWF stands for uh, World Wildlife Fund. It is a global organization and we have offices in Canada and our main goal is conservation mm-hmm. and we focus mainly on ways through which people in nature can thrive and nature-based solutions for a number of issues related to conservation and environmental work. We have offices in Toronto, Ottawa, Halifax, St. John's, Nunavut, uh, BC, and other smaller offices in Canada. And my work is related to the wildlife and industry team. And this team is basically focused on ways through which industry can find ways to support and also sustainable ways to exist with, you know, wildlife and nature. So we work with shipping, fishing, mining, and many other industries to understand how these industries can do better in terms of sustainability. I love it. And we're going to dive more into that But you mentioned you're in Canada, but you're originally from Brazil. So how did you, growing up in Brazil, how did you get interested in ocean and ocean science? And how did you make the leap to Canada? That's quite the change. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So even though I was born and raised in a community in Salvador, Bahia, northeast of Brazil, that it is a coastal city, but where I was 
living, it was quite hard to get to to the beach and to the water. It was a very like a vulnerable community in terms of social vulnerability, economic vulnerability. But I've always felt connected to the ocean. I remember every summer uh, my aunt would go to a, a friend's house in an island close to, to my city and that would be the best time that I can remember from my childhood. Mm-hmm. So I always have this connection that I, I truly believe the connection to the ocean nature, it goes beyond the physical contact. I like to say that it's something that it's even, it's a memory that it, it's not only our memory, it comes from our ancestors and has so much so many layers to it. So growing up in that community, I've always felt like we did not have enough green space. It was a slum in, in, in Brazil, right? So you have like houses built on top of all the houses and you don't have parks, you don't have trees. I've always missed it. That was one of the motivations I had as a kid was to get connected with nature, even though I I was not growing up around it. Mm. Throughout my journey, uh, trying to find this connection in a more more direct way, I became a volunteer in many organizations. I also started my own organization with a couple of friends. We still work on this organization in Brazil. And I went to school to study oceanography. Couldn't be another <laughs> another field because I really love the ocean and I choose it as my career. And then after I finished school, I wanted to have a more political and social approach to oceanography. Mm. It was very like science heavy, like it was heavily in science, everything that I learned in school. And I want to have a more political approach to the matters related to the ocean. So I came to Canada to do my master's in marine management. And then as part of my program, I got an internship with WWF Canada. And I have I started as an intern and I've been there for almost two years. After the internship, I continued the work that I was doing. And yeah, that's basically how I arrived here. Wonderful. So there's a couple of things that you kind of brushed over that I would really like to unpack a little bit. What is this organization that you and your friend started in Brazil? Okay, this organization is called Educa Maris, which if we could translate would be something like um, Educa Seas, which is focused on marine education. And we use sports and art as a way to connect people with the ocean. So, I mean, I am biased to say that, but it's a beautiful project because we, for the first time, work with dancers and artists, musicians, and all these people who most of the time speak different language. They are all together to talk about one thing, the marine environment and the connection that people have, but sometimes, you know, they they don't remember and therefore they, they are not aware of 
how important it is. Mm -hmm. So the focus of our work is really to connect people. We believe that the reason why we sometimes don't care much about what happens to the ocean or we don't connect how the ocean influences so much of our daily lives is because we don't understand it. But mm-hmm. beyond the understanding of the science behind it is the feelings. It's the, you know, that connection that I was talking about at the beginning. We believe that through arts and sports, you can have actually, you can create memories. And we think memories are a very powerful way that people can connect and care about. Because once you have a memory of that space and you create that connection through that memory, it is really hard for you to not take it personal, right? Mm -hmm. To not see the oceans an extension of yourself because now it's part of your memory. So that's the work that we do. It's completely different of the work that I do here. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. It's very very artistic and plays with many different tools that I I don't necessarily do here with my work at WWF. So it it balances super well. Yeah, that's really cool. And it's a really good point that, you know, kind of goes back to the quote, you protect what you love, right? If you have that memory, if you have that, that sentimentality of a place or an experience on the ocean, you want to protect it because you want to be able to preserve how it was in your memory or make it better. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's very powerful. So you mentioned that you went to school for oceanography and decided that you wanted to take a more political approach. And we kind of touched a little bit about this before we hit the record button, but could you explain a little bit more about why, why you shifted away from the really sciencey aspect of it and more into the political realm of ocean conservation? Yeah, I think that beginning of my life at that community gave me a lot of social interactions and social experience. Mm-hmm. And I carry it in everything that I do. <laughs> Doesn't matter how sciencey I want to be, I always have this social background mm-hmm. that it's not, I mean, I can't really be a reference because I never went to school I don't know the tools but I have that personal experience I care very much about how what I know Mm -hmm. will influence or empower people and who are these people for me who are these people is a very important question Mm -hmm. that move everything that I do so after I have all the knowledge that I had about the ocean I I found myself asking okay what can I do with it and for whom like who can benefit who needs to be who needs to be benefited from this from this knowledge and then it brought me back to these communities they are in the front line of climate change of you know the destruction of mangroves in brazil for instance and other places these communities they hold so much knowledge and practices but they are not the ones being heard or they are not the ones who are actually representing the work related to the marine life so i i realized that you know it has to be political (laughs) i cannot really detach it from science because the science that i have right now or the knowledge that i have right now it's just 
one layer and there's this huge word with like traditional communities, indigenous communities in Brazil and all over the world that, you know, they needed to be in the front line of this conversation. That was my motivation to bring more of the social and political aspect because I couldn't find throughout my career in oceanography that representation and um, I, I thought was important. Yeah, that's a really good point. And, and it's really, really is important. We can kind of get into the scientific echo chamber, right? Once you're in the scientific community, especially marine science, it's really small and you can kind of just get tucked in there and, and you get into your own little echo chamber and, and you don't really expand out of it. And the problem is that the communities and the people that need to hear a message and to, that would benefit from the science are outside of this little niche. So it's important to kind of branch out of it. Yeah, totally. I think that was also a moment where I was um, connecting the dots about colonization on land and what's happening right now in the ocean, right? When we're thinking about the open sea, which is that area that nobody is responsible for, but everyone can actually do whatever they want there. You know, when I start to think about it, I connect the dots about, wow, what happened on land is happening right now in the ocean because the only nations that can actually access the open ocean are nations that are developed. They have like economic power. Hmm. But all of the, all other nations, most of them don't even know what's really going on, what they're extracting from these so-called open ocean. And that realization that I was perhaps in this in a different year, different like century, but seeing the same strategy being played made me really think that I wanted to be part of that game, but playing in the side of awareness, bringing, you know, the conversation to these other countries and trying to understand how we can not repeat the same things we did on land in the ocean? How can we take all the knowledge we have right now of what not to do in terms of colonizing places and peoples and not do the same in the ocean? There was a point as well that, that really moved me towards a more political and social aspect of the ocean. That's mm. <laughs> a really interesting perspective that I hadn't, makes total sense that I hadn't really thought about it before is we're colonizing the ocean similarly to how we colonized on land and that it's a few few of the power players and it's the same ones that are kind of doing the work. But before we get into all that, you mentioned that you got a degree in marine management. Yeah. So what what did that look like? What did you know, what did your coursework kind of look like? And and what did that really start to shift your perspective in? Oh, that's that's a great question. So I think that work was very hands-on, which was completely different of what I experienced before. Mm. Was very project-based and teamwork. And uh, one of the things that I liked the most about the program was that was very, you know, was related to things and issues that we are facing right now. So I felt like I was learning about and I was trying to understand solutions to problems that we are facing right now. 
So I think marine management and it depends of the program that you are doing, where you are doing it, can be a, a very good way to be exposed to complex problems because anything related to the ocean, it's extremely complex mm-hmm. in a way that you can work with your peers to understand what are the tools you have to address that problem. Mm-hmm. And that's what I did during my master's was very hands-on in that sense of having teams and groups where I would be exposed to situations and case studies and throughout our program, understand the tools we could apply to address the problems we're exposed to. So that's, I think, a way that I would synthesize it. But one aspect of this program that I think I liked the most was the opportunity to have internship as part of your master's. Mm -hmm. So that's what some people call this type of program a professional master's. Even Mm -hmm. though you have to write a paper, you have this very, like, professional and applied Mm -hmm. uh, portion of the program and that's how I got into WWF so that that was one of the best things I would say about this program and needed because after a couple of years studying oceanography in academia I was really looking for something more applied and hands-on Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a really excellent point. You know, a lot of undergrad and master's program is so much about just get the grades, write the paper and get out and a lot. And then, and then what, right. You you hear about people not being left on jobs. So it's a really powerful, really powerful way to get experience while you're in school is a really great way to get a job that you really want, but it's great that your program requires that because it makes that very practical learning experience and then helps you helps you get a job afterwards yeah. <laughs> totally totally and I also I think at the beginning you talked about you know that bubble right the academic bubble and I think when you have these programs that are trying to balance a professional component to your degree it helps you to be connected to what's going on in the real world Mm-hmm. right? Because academia can be quite behind in some aspects of practicality <laughs> of, you know, marine issues. I, I think that was a very um, good strategy the program had, and I'm really glad I was there. Yeah. Why did you go t- to Canada for it, though? Because you got your undergrad in New York, right? Well, half of my undergrad was in Brazil, half in New York. Yeah, so the Brazilian government had a program called Science Without Border and basically selected a couple of students Mm. in Brazil that would go to, my case, to the U.S. Others went to other countries and they would sponsor you to take classes in a university uh, related to your degree. And so I went to New York uh, and I studied for one year and a half, uh, for one year, sorry, in New York. And I also did an internship in Hawaii as, uh, as part of this program. So it was like a whole package. And then I finished it in Brazil. The reason why I chose Canada was really the program and 
also the fact that the program was in a university that was in a coastal city. Because mm-hmm. for me, it was really important <laughs> to be studying about the ocean in a place where I could see the ocean. But the program and, again, that aspect of being able to work while I was uh, studying was was quite important mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. Choosing the program, you kind of you kind of make it from the yet beginning. <laughs> yeah, and also I think you know I don't like to romanticize academia. It's it can be quite hard. It depends of who you are, what you want, but it can be really hard mm-hmm. to be there and be true to yourself and be <laughs> true to your goals and your passion. Mm. Your passion, I think it's something that's really important. And throughout the process of getting a degree, sometimes the passion is not taken into consideration. I think when you make a decision that's related to a program, when things get hard, it's easier to go back to that state of, okay, I, I selected and I know why I selected mm-hmm. and I know what I want from it. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think if your criteria to do a program is about the place or other criteria, it can get a bit hard. You know, academia is such a require yeah. from you an effort that sometimes is it's beyond what you think you can offer. Mm-hmm. It can be a struggle. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really good point is knowing that having your why and yes. I, and it's important in anything that you do in life. You know, if you do something, you should have your reasons for it. You don't have to share them with anybody else, but knowing why you're doing this and, you know, going to school isn't just something that should be taken lightly. It's a lot of time and money and you should have a concrete reason why you're doing it and why you selected that program. Cause yeah, it's going to get hard. It should be hard. Otherwise everybody would do it. Right. So being able to revert back to that, why is, is clutch. <laughs> yeah. The mental health, right. I think mm-hmm. you need to, again, like great the way you say that your why needs to be stronger than all the, the mental health issues you can face throughout mm-hmm. because you will everyone <laughs> almost everyone does like you have research showing it that you know most of the people doing the masters and phd all over the world so it's not a matter of really background it's it's what you are doing that requires so much from you that we need to be aware of it and have a strong sense of our goals and what moves us, our passion in that case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent points. So we have gone really off the rails, but I really like our conversation. <laughs> so let's get back to let's get back to the high seas. So can you ex- could you please explain? So we have like, I mean, in the U.S. we have states, right? So we go three miles offshore. That's kind of state boundaries and or um, national waters, and then. Mm-hmm then what is it, 17 miles offshore is considered international waters? Is that the law? Well, it really depends. Of, so these, this area that you're going to define as part of the 
what we call EEZ, the Exclusive Economic Zone. Mm -hmm. It depends of some aspects of the coastal line of this 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 continent or this country, right? So let's say in Brazil, if you look this area, the EEZ in Brazil, in some parts they are very narrow, like it's not that big. But when you go closer to the Amazon, you have like this huge portion that gets like into the Atlantic and it's called as part of the Brazilians territory. And the reason for that is because the Amazon River carries so much sediment that extends the the river beyond right where the river actually finishes. So you have this influence of coastal process into the ocean that can be advocated so brazil can advocate it as saying well you know this part is still part of my territory mm -hmm. so it varies depends of many aspects and countries need to kind of like study it and bring all the data to approve the area so the un is the, the united nations they have departments and uh, people that only work with this kind of issue so when you talk about the high seas, we're talking about areas that it's beyond any territory. So you're really in the middle of the ocean, or well, not necessarily the middle of the ocean, but you are in an area that there is no more influence from any continent or from any continental phenomena. Mm -hmm. So their area, it's it's called high seas. And even though the UN also has some guidelines, I want to call it guidelines because there is no such a thing as regulations or laws when it comes from it because you are not really related to any nation, right? Mm -hmm. So enforcement is a problem. Enforcement is a problem. Another thing that's a problem is the capacity to watch the area technology and human capacity to be able to understand what's going on there and who is there and what's happening there we we don't have it this is an area where let's say countries with economic power they have access because they have the vessels and the technology to explore these areas. But let's say other countries with less economic capacity and technological capacity, they, they can't. And when we're thinking about, uh, when we make that analogy that I made before about the same motivations or the same aspects that define why some countries would colonize others they are very similar to what's happening right here right now it's the capacity to go there mm -hmm. and to explore the area basically why is this a problem on the high seas what's going on there can be many problems we can think about fishing as one of the problems uh, but we can also think about deep mining which right now some places are starting to talk about it in a more serious way mm -hmm. we know enough to know that we should be careful <laughs> okay. we know enough to know that we need to take a precautionary approach and not really 
explore it in the way that the technology now allows it to be done. And the risk is just so high, right, for anything to happen and to all the aspects of the deep deep ocean that we haven't explored yet from a scientific perspective we don't know much mm. about the organisms about the chemical reactions and the com- the components of that environment we don't know enough so imagine that now we are going there and we are trying to explore something that we don't even understand Mm -hmm. from from the biological chemical and even physical perspective of the ocean so uh, i believe this someone working directly with deep mining could perhaps have more technical explanations for it but i would say in my view one of the main points is that lacking of understanding that we should be careful Mm -hmm. right Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when people think like ocean exploration, I think a lot of people just assume um, maybe some biology being conducted, whether you're taking water quality samples or maybe checking some chemistry. But when we say mining, I mean, it's like actually deep ocean mining. And because it's because the ocean is so volatile and we don't know all of these different components, it can have catastrophic consequences. And that's one of the main issues with it. And even testing to see if a mine is good in an area, they have to do these sonic blasts. And that can affect all all kinds of wildlife, particularly whales and animals that move by sound. Yeah, and last time I checked, I mean, that was in 2018. Mm -hmm. The feasibility in terms of even how much you have to invest and how much you are taking from that investment didn't make any sense. Like mm-hmm. the, the amount of money and technology that you need to invest to extract from the ocean is just so much that what you're taking from it can't justify. Mm-hmm. So I don't know um, in what stage they are at right now because this these things, they can change quite quickly. But last time I checked, it didn't make sense, even from an economic perspective. Well, that's a relief to hear, because that will probably drive a lot. <laughs> <laughs> we hope so. <laughs> okay. so. So this isn't the main focus of your work, though. You look at shipping issues as far as pollution um, and exhaust gas cleaning and greenhouse gases and black carbon emissions. Could you kind of deconstruct what that is and what that really looks like yeah i think i would like to start by just inviting people to to think about shipping right like i think we don't think much but if right now you look around you and you start to think about where the stuff you have came from you are going to figure it out that almost everything you have arrived to you directly or indirectly via ship. And actually this number is 90%. The UN has a report where they figured it out that 90%, this is huge. 90%, nine zero? 
90% of everything we buy. Yeah, this is a lot. It is almost in everything that we use, consume, and buy, exchange. I read one of your articles on WWF's website about this, and you, you were like, even the phone that you're reading this on, and I was like, oh, yes, that's a really good point. So whatever yeah. device you're listening to this podcast on, it's from shipping. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, one of these days I even ordered like cake from a friend who is local and then she sent the cake the cake was delicious and then I just out of curiosity I asked her for the list of ingredients she used and I started to search <laughs> where the ingredients came from and I realized that you know she's local which makes it local please support local that's not I'm not saying to not support local but almost all the ingredients she used came from elsewhere not even Canada. Mm -hmm. So that brings you this perspective of how much we are connected to the shipping industry, but we are not aware of it. Mm -hmm. And we, even though it is, you know, such an important service for our society, keeps it moves that globalization that we have, this global system, mm -hmm. it is moved and it is possible because of shipping we don't think or we are not aware of the impact that this industry has in the environment and our lives mm -hmm. one of the works that i do is related to shipping emissions and shipping compared to let's say aviation it's not as bad in terms of emissions but when you think about how many vessels you need to move 90% of everything we have, you can pretty much understand how the scope of this industry in terms of the impact it can have in the environment being neglected. Shipping emissions has not been mentioned or even taken into consideration when we talk about climate agreements and we need to change it. So one of the works that I do is at the national level trying to understand how a national action plan for the shipping industry to reduce CO2 emissions and all the emissions can be aligned with Canada's goal to reduce emissions as a nation because Canada is one of the signatories of the Paris Agreement. Mm -hmm. So they do need to report and have plans to reduce emissions as a nation. At the global level, I also work with the International Maritime Organization. It's a UN body that regulates international shipping and also emissions for international shipping. Mm -hmm. So what we're trying to do at the IMO is to align its goals with Paris Agreement. And Paris Agreement is that agreement where we want to keep global temperature below two degrees Celsius mm -hmm. and try very hard mm -hmm. to get into 1.5 degrees. This is one of the ways that my work with shipping goes. And that is also the pollution stream, right? This is more related to discharge from shipping. 
Mm-hmm. And this is a whole <laughs> word that we could have one podcast to talk about. Basically, if you think about a vessel as a city where people live, where people in some vessels like cruise ship, you party, you buy, and you stay there for a long time. You also think about how much pollution is generated Mm -hmm. from these activities and where it goes. So you have the pollution that comes from the laundry machine and sinks, the pollution that comes from toilets. And even though you have a couple of technologies that is supposed to help clean this discharge, unfortunately, new studies are showing that this technology, they don't work at the standard that it should be mm. and which means that we are basically discharging all of this pollution into the water and contaminating not only the marine environment itself but all the organisms there and the communities that rely on these organisms directly for their um, livelihood this is whole aspects of shipping that i feel sometimes we are not aware and it's neglected because Mm -hmm. people don't know therefore they don't talk about it but my work at wwf and uh, with my team at wwf it's really make sure shipping is included in all of the conversations about about climate change and pollution stream as well yeah so i saw I think it was in your article that the International Maritime Organization had a goal of cutting shipping emissions in half by 2050, and that was relative to 2008 levels. How are we doing on that? What are some of the steps that are being taken? Let's talk about this goal. (laughs) I don't think we have that much time, right? Mm -hmm. When we think about this where we are at right now, we don't have that window to trying to decrease it by half in 25th. You know, like we should be aiming to have decarbonization by 2030 because Mm. we know that after that, it's going to be really hard to stop any uh, climate-related crisis more than we are living right now from happening. The first thing we think is that this goal could be more ambitious. And we don't think it just because we are environmentalists, but, you know, Norway, for instance, and the UK, they have compromised to decarbonize the shipping industry by 2030. Mm. If a nation can set goals and targets that you guide them to decarbonization by 2030, we can't understand why the International Maritime Organization couldn't do the same. Mm-hmm. Your second question is like, how is that going? Well, unfortunately, in the last meeting we had with the, the IMO works with meetings that is usually based on topics. So we had the topic related to emissions and the way it works you have delegates from different countries also delegates that represent the industry and they represent NGOs and WWF was also there I was attending the meetings and unfortunately the agreement we got from that meeting at the end 
what that agreement really represents is business as usual mm. because countries unfortunately i feel like they are not taking climate change at the level of a problem that it is the level of the crisis that we are facing as they should be taking very seriously and at the end of a whole week of negotiations and meetings what we got was business as usual which means that nothing really changed in terms of emissions from shipping in this first term which the IMO called the short term mm. so the IMO divided the ambition into short term mid and long term for the short term these negotiations led us with business as usual which which means that in the next few years until 2025 what we're going to see from the shipping mission internationally it's it's not really making any difference as it should be and it's not aligned with paris agreement which was one of the things that we really disappointed about Mm. Why is it so important to reduce emissions? Okay, that's great. I think to answer the question we need to think about why we talk about climate emergency, right? Or climate crisis. I I like the word climate crisis and climate emergency more than climate change. Mm. And I think so, the reason for that is sense of urgency. <laughs> exactly. And also I think it also gives you the idea that climate itself the word climate it's it's beautiful it's not a problem climate is not a problem mm -hmm. by itself it's the solution it's what made it possible for us human beings to live on earth was a stable climate that we could plant and grow stuff and animals can can also survive to the temperature we have right now the climate we have is amazing mm -hmm. the problem is that emissions especially what we call greenhouse gas emissions which are gases that when they are released and come to the atmosphere what they do is to basically hold heat right so what we are doing is making earth warmer mm -hmm. than it should be well what scientists are saying right now is that when they project let's say the projection looks at what we are doing right now and then looks further into 5 10 20 years in the future if we keep doing the same thing and keeping in mind that as a population we are growing so you have you know that projection taken into consideration to how many people will be 10 years 20 years from now we see that these emissions they need to be reduced we need to stop them otherwise it's going to be impossible for humans to live on earth mm -hmm. and this is the big picture but i like to also bring it to right here right now because when we talk about climate change i feel like sometimes people think this is something in the future mm -hmm. and that's not real that you know it's happening right now The city that I, I grew up in Brazil called Salvador every rain season you see a community being almost destroyed by these extreme events where the coastline is basically destroyed and the water can get into people's house and then you have 
these communities that are already facing economic uh, vulnerability, social vulnerability, having to deal with climate change. And then you go to other uh, island states in the Pacific, same thing. We are talking about whole nation being threatened by climate change, language, culture, memories, people. This is happening right now. This is not in the future. But because it is happening with communities that are not in the front line of the conversation, or unfortunately, they don't have the political power to make the change they need to prevent this from happening, the conversation doesn't get the urgency and the, you know, the weight. Yeah, that should have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hope I explain what you asked me. I think I just threw some political stuff there too. I told you that's me. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's it's a really good point, and and to tie it all together, you know, it's it's a global issue, and and the political part is relevant because we're we're all on one planet, and we're all affected by it. That kind of leads me. I always say the conservation ask for the very tippy end, but I feel like right now is a really good spot because as a person, I mean, climate change just seems so insurmountable and there's all these little things that we can do, right? So that's one of the reasons why I asked the conservation ask at at the end of each episode. But shipping specifically just seems monumental to tackle as like a one person consumer. What is something that a single person or a single household can do that's a great question. First of all, I think is knowledge and know and have sheep in your mind when you're talking about climate change and industries that contribute to climate change. It's really important to bring shipping to the table of climate change discussion. Mm-hmm. It is important to make the industry accountable. They cannot just, you know, get a free pass and everyone is trying and the, the industry just gets like a free pass and they're not doing anything. Second thing is that we are consumers. All that we are buying came from someone or organization that is it's in this middle line between us and the shipping industry. Mm-hmm. So one way that we could fact what's happening is by in many ways that you can you can always like report you to these big organizations you can always write to them like it's easy online you can just go to their website and have like some sort of contact where you can tell them hey so what's up with shipping that use like are you are you aware of the impact of shipping in, in the world what are you doing about it mm-hmm. and when you have these organizations asking you to provide feedback tell them that you you care about the ways that they are handling the products tell them that you care about how green the whole process including shipping is because these organizations they do have the power to force the industry to come up with solutions to the problems they have. And as a consumer, these organizations, these big corporations want us to keep buying. So our opinion should be taken into consideration. And, you know, more than that, I really think 
share with people, talk to people about it, say, hey, I heard in a podcast about like shipping and how shipping is everything we do. And then I've thought about it and then share this knowledge and let people know because I think it, it's the same. We have seen it before, right? We have seen it with like cars. We have seen it even with the straw, the power of knowledge, how people start to talk to each other about the impacts of straw. And suddenly everyone was like, oh my God, I hate straws. No, you've got to, right? You need to have a better solution to that problem. Even people who don't call themselves environmentalists are such a not be really cool about straws Mm -hmm. so sharing and empower yourself with knowledge and when you have the opportunity tell these big corporations that you care about how they're shipping the the stuff it's i think a great way to do something about it really excellent points we really are butting up on the edge of our of our hour but i want to circle back for one more time for you talked a little bit about emissions so what are some things that the shipping industry can do, right? How do they modify their ships to make it better? Awesome. This is such a great question. There are many ways through which the shipping industry can address the emissions problems. Uh, and the one thing that we need to really know is that one vessel can live up to like 30 years. 30 years, one vessel can be One vessel. Okay. Yes. So you can have the vessel, you bought the vessel, let's say you bought the vessel yesterday, you know, you have 20 more years. That's a really long lifespan for something that lives in a very hostile environment. The saltwater environment is not very nice to most things. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It is quite long, you know, and this is because we have been doing it for so long and developed so many beautiful ways to thrive in that environment like so shipping has many technologies and and ways that they can thrive in the ocean but when you think about this lifetime and you think well if you buy something today it means that by 2025th if you buy today a vessel that doesn't have anything that can support this vessel to not you know cause any emissions in 2050, you still have this vessel. So we need to start right now mm-hmm. <laughs> talking about and investing in solutions because the technology and the idea is out there, but they need to have investment so it can make it to the market. Mm. So you have solutions such as wind for vessels you have solutions such as you know uh, some attesting solar panel for vessels you have alternative fuels so you can talk about hydrogen cells you can talk about ammonia you can talk about other alternative fuels that will not have the same impact as fuels that we use today Mm -hmm. that are fossil fuels but one very important point about it is that we need research and development and to do so we need to invest right now and we can't just expect the industry to do its its part right we're talking about here also policies change and governments also investing this technology so they can support the industry to make that transition and have industry willing to 
try and willing to support the technology and the solutions they have. Therefore, I think we can get the mass much faster than we do if we don't have this type of um, investment. Because again, if we don't do it in the next few years, by 2025, we still have vessels that use fossil fuel in 2050, mm. right? Mm -hmm. So we're not getting there. We are not going to reach the goal of decarbonization by 2050 at all. Gotcha. Mm -hmm. I'm sitting here thinking of like, I mean, initially when we went to this conversation, I was like, oh, you could do carbon scrubbers, but you're talking about completely different methods of powering the boat. So this is, I mean, boat, this is like several hundred foot long ship. But you mentioned wind, I'm picturing like little wind turbines throughout the whole deck. Um, and what would be really fun, right? They have dams, like hydropower. Could they use the kinetic energy from like the movement of the ship to like create more energy to power it? I don't know. People listening to the podcast that are more engineering minded, things to think about. Yeah, you know what I saw today? I was just I was just watching a documentary today and I saw a vessel that had a kite, kites that people mm -hmm. just used. And this thing hanging there <laughs> was producing um, energy to move the vessel. So, you know, there is so many, you know, engineers and all these beautiful people out there with great mind and ideas that need to have investment to try it. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, there is another thing that's very important about this conversation is the investment on land. Mm -hmm. So there is a study showing that 80%, so 80% of the investment we need to make the transition for the shipping industry has to happen on land. Mm. Because, you know, when you see a vessel and stops at port, it needs to recharge. It needs mm -hmm. to have whatever it is using. If it's hydrogen, if it's like solar power, if it's like electric vessels, which is like a huge promise, mm -hmm. you need to be able to plug in. You mm -hmm. need to be able to plug a port and then again, the energy that you that you are getting has to also come from a clean source. And you can talk about solar, whatever you want when you talk about land power, right? But this is a very important aspect that only do you need to invest much more to get there than on in the vessels itself. All right. That's a really good point too. It's too cold. <laughs> it's not just out on the high seas, it's also important. Yeah, exactly. And this has been also one of the things that we're working at WWF now is to understand how ports can support decarbonization and what they can do to make that transition happen for vessels um, in Canada and all over the world as well. That's wonderful. So before we end today, one of my very, very favorite questions to ask is what is one of your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this can be, you know, growing up on the ocean, some of your memories from the ocean or some of your current professional experiences could be an amazing day that everything went right. It could be a day that everything went wrong, but it makes a really great story now. 
Um, but yes. Oh, okay. I have a very wild one. So before, <laughs> before I made my way to a more political and science-based um, desk <laughs> approach to conservation work, I was actually an activist and I worked for an organization where I was in the front line protesting, like always Pacific protests. I've never been really into... Is this, is this upon Greenpeace's ship, Rainbow Warrior? We didn't even talk about this, and I wanted to talk about this. Yeah, okay. this is exactly that. I think if you Google my name, you're going to find this, which is really crazy. Okay. But, well, uh, I was in this vessel, and basically I worked in, in this vessel as a... Um, deckhand for um, uh, almost four months. I traveled the uh, South Atlantic Ocean, so mm -hmm. many places in Brazil, including the Amazon region and also Argentina, Uruguay. Could you just back up and explain a little bit about this, this ship? I had no idea, like I know Greenpeace and I know that they're an international organization and they fight for um, the environment as a whole, and I had no idea that they have Sea Shepherd-esque type ship roaming our seas as well. Could you just kind of explain a little bit about the Rainbow Warrior? Yeah, sure. The Rainbow Warrior was the, the first vessel that was actually planned and made for Greenpeace because Greenpeace has all the vessels, uh, including one called Esperanza, mm -hmm. which is a vessel that was bought old vessel that they just adapted and do the work with this vessel. Rainbow Warrior, though, was an old vessel that they had before uh, that then the vessel was just like, you know, too old and they planned and built this new Rainbow Warrior. So this is a sailboat. It works. It can work. It's hybrid, but can work 100% only with wind. It has very cool technology, for instance, see all the water we used in the vessel. It came from the ocean and went through like a treatment that they had, like a type of technology inside the vessel that would treat the water and would drink and use this water for everything. And a fun fact about it is that when we we're traveling in the Amazon River, we couldn't <laughs> really use that technology because, you know, rivers, they have so much sediment and pieces of things that you couldn't really take that water and in the, use that water. So mm -hmm. it was a fun trip in the Amazon River because we'd have to actually take bucks and get the water to take shower. <laughs> so it was, it was quite wild traveling there. But this is the story of vessels for Greenpeace and that basically what these vessels do, it's going to different ports and serve as a base to show Greenpeace's campaign mm -hmm. uh, in that specific country where they are. In Brazil, for instance, when I was in this vessel, we had a campaign related to the Amazon forest. What was happening there is that there is a thing called pig iron. And this is a material that is extracted in the Amazon and goes to North America and Europe. And it's used in the industry to build, for instance, in laundry machine. The way that they were doing it in Brazil was very disturbing mm -hmm. because they were basically using a 
using people who were working to extract this, this material, they were always slaves. They would take these people from villages, most of them like natives that lived in the area and was, you know, in a small village, they would go there and say like, listen, we, we got this job for you uh, in that place. We're going to pay well. These people would go. Uh, and then when they would get there, they would say, well, you know, we paid for your trip here. We pay for a place for you to stay for your food. Therefore, you own us. We don't own you. And these people would work in conditions that was like not human at all. It was mm. really bad. As you can see, <laughs> I was passionate about this campaign because, again, it, it was two things in one. Like the deforestation to produce this material combined with the social aspect and I felt like okay this is what I really believe when social issues and environmental issues are combined really quickly often they are it's amazing yes. how they are I think in everything they are right we are yeah. humans and the yeah. problems exist because we create them what I did and this is my funny and not so funny for my mother for mm-hmm. instance when I say that <laughs> is that I lived in a hanging in a very small platform made of wood that was attached to the anchor. Yeah. Yeah. So we attached a very small seat made of wood with like two row uh, four pieces of rope on, on each side, each one of its side. We attach it to the anchor of this vessel. And I lived there for almost 20 days. You lived in like on an anchor shed. You made yourself a little, little yes. hut of an anchor. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, the idea behind it, it was because this specific vessel was traveling to that port in Brazil to be loaded with that the material right mm. and what we wanted to do was to stop them mm. from from getting this material therefore would create some sort of problem especially financial problem because these vessels cost a lot of money when they stay there and they're not mm. really traveling and after the 20th day and with the support of so many people we had actually people um, actors and actors from Hollywood even coming to <laughs> hang there with me at certain point where was this anchor actually located was in a city called I mean in the the bay uh, close to a city called San Luis it's a huge vessel. If you search for this, if you put like um, my name, probably put like uh, something like Greenpeace or something like um, Anchor <laughs> or the Pay, I don't know. You put any of these like, keywords, you're going to find it. It's a huge vessel. This was actually a vessel that could um, break ice. So it's the type of vessels that are very, very big. Okay. So they they were anchored close to the port because they did not have permission yet to go to the port, right? So vessels sometimes they they have like they have to wait outside the port until they can actually go there to be loaded. Mm-hmm. So when they anchored in that bay to wait for the time to go to the port, I came, I climbed the anchor a yes. bit, and okay. then I. 
I, you know, I put my little thing there, my, my cat. Yeah, and I stayed for the next um, 20 days. We were afraid they would, like, I don't know, have, like, water throwing at us. But they were really nice. The crew at the vessel, we actually offered them food and stuff because we want to make sure that the 20 days we're stopping them from going to the, to, to the port would not uh, stop them from getting food and water, anything they needed. Mm-hmm. But I was extremely happy with this campaign because after the 20th day, we left the vessel and we went straight to the port and stayed on the pile of um, peg iron. And the government was just like, oh my God, we got to do something about it. And the companies in Europe and North America also started to say, wait, what's going on? Why suddenly all my clients are talking about how bad I am because of things you were doing <laughs> in Brazil? Like this, there is like a little girl like being held in a vessel. What's going on? And the pressure was just so much that they sign a compromise to stop deforestation and also to align uh, the um, workforce with all the laws and uh, criteria they should be aligned to and to make sure the people who wanted to go home could go home and not be held there as slaves. So was very intense <laughs> and um, it's not always that we can participate in such a thing and see it ending up well so I was extremely happy to be there and see it unfold in such a, a great way everyone was extremely happy with the outcomes that's amazing what a cool story I actually just pulled this up on the web it was, it's an article from 2012 on Greenpeace and it's Right now, a 20-year-old Brazilian named Elisama de Alagrama <laughs> is attached to the anchor chain of a massive cargo ship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They made, I mean, they, they were like, I think the moment they saw, like, I'm, I'm a short girl, right? I'm not tall. So I think the photos made it in videos, if you find it, made it look like very like, oh, my God, someone yeah. take this little girl out of these things. That's one of the lines. She's a small girl anyway, but next to the 175-meter yeah. clipper hope, she looks absolutely tiny. <laughs> Oh my God, I forgot that they actually mentioned my heart. Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, I think that made people like, I received so many letters, you have no idea. People were really cute and nice. Like, all for all, all over the world, people would send me letters and they're like, hang there, you know, we're gonna go, we're gonna, you're gonna fight it, we're gonna win. I'm like, oh my God, thank you so much, everyone. But it was beautiful being there. Like, some, people ask me so how did you feel like it was so peaceful was Mm -hmm. I was in my element (laughs) (laughs) was really nice yeah that is an amazing story and I love that it wasn't just you know you had you sat on anchor chain to make a point but it actually really made a difference and that's really special so very cool thank you for doing that Thank you for having me and asking these amazing questions. I had so much fun.
Yeah. So um, if the audience wants to find you, connect with you, where's the best place to do that? Well, you can email me if you want. It's my first name, Alisama, and my last name, Menezes, all together at gmail.com. You can also find me in LinkedIn. Like I, I actually have many people message me in LinkedIn asking me about how do I get into, you know, conservation work? And I, I always respond for it like every single message. So it's also my name, Alessama Menezes. Twitter, same, Alessama Menezes. I'm also on social media. Um, if you tell me, I don't have like an open account, but if you tell me you heard me and you want to follow me, I am so happy to have, <laughs> to have you around if you want to, you know, exchange information about anything pretty much environmental work and being an international student in Canada I've received a lot of this question as well wonderful um, and I'll put a link to all of this in the show notes as well awesome perfect perfect well Alessandra Ellie it was really wonderful chatting with you thank you so much for being on the show thank you Kara. I had so much fun and I cannot wait she's to hear it i think yeah my first podcast thank you so much for this opportunity i really appreciate that absolutely hey do you want to help the oceans have you considered a career in marine biology but maybe just aren't sure where to start head on over to my website marinebio.life and subscribe to my newsletter when you subscribe you'll receive a free pdf download where you'll learn the seven steps to becoming a marine biologist without the degree Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight for me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community one person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.